Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where we read, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Caesar Augustus, uh, he was originally named Gaius Octavius, if you remember your Roman history, he went sometimes by the name Octavian. He assumed the name Augustus when he rose to power, and based on the word August, meaning awe-inspiring or majestic. And he's the majestic, awe-inspiring king of the universe, effectively, as was the Roman Caesar. He issued a decree that a census should take place. Two purposes for a Roman census. One would be it was the best way to enlist new soldiers into your army. The second, it was the best way to collect taxes. And the Jews in that day, like most people, utterly despised this, this idea of Roman taxation. They felt like they were paying for the, for the occupation of their homeland. So Augustus issues this census decree and verse 3, everyone went to their own town to register. This was a very savvy political strategy. While the Jews hated taxation, they were a people that loved uh, friends and family. So what effectively Caesar does is he sends them home for the, for the holidays, home for the census. He sends them back to their ancestral homeland where that'll make the whole thing a little bit more palatable, to go home and to your hometown and see family and, and friends. So, verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee. He went up from there. You say, well, it's in the north. Why are they going up? Well, it, it's Judea is higher elevation. He goes up to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because... He belonged to the house and the line of David, the city of Bethlehem, six miles south-southwest of, of Jerusalem. And what we know about it in the first century is a very small town, probably less than a thousand inhabitants there. He goes there because it's the, the town of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him or betrothed. And she was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. And apparently the custom was that you would take strips of linen cloth, you bind the baby up tightly to keep its limbs straight. She binds him in cloths and places him in a manger. If you, what is a manger? Kids, a manger was a feeding trough for animals. She places him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. But, you know, our translation doesn't say that. It says that there was no guest room available for them. As I said, the city of Bethlehem, it wasn't really a city. It was a village. There might have been no more than 300 people. It was not located on a major road. It was, it was very small. It probably did not have Traveler's Lodge or an inn. 
So, well, and what's significant, I told the first service, is the word that Luke uses here, he doesn't use the, the traditional word for an N. The, the word for an N is, well, what is it? It's pandexion. And it comes up later in his gospel. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke uses it. The, that good, warm-hearted individual who takes the wounded man to the city of Jericho and puts him up in a pan, pandexion and puts him up in an end. That's a typical traveler's lodge. But here the word that he uses is the word that is used in chapter 22 of his gospel in the account of the, the passage on the Lord's Supper. If you remember, Jesus sends his disciples ahead and, and says, search out and find a guest room for me in, in this house that you go to. And there you are supposed to make preparations for the Passover meal for us to, to eat. That's the word that he uses here. There was no guest room available for them. So probably what's happening, more than likely, Joseph and Mary are staying at a house of a member of Joseph's extended family. It could have even have been the home that Joseph grew up in as a boy. You know, I'm speculating. But this was an ancestral home. This was Joseph's home. And at a, at a minimum, it is, is filled with people and there's hardly any space. If you remember that when the Magi come, they actually end up coming about two years later. And when they come, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby living in a home. It's this home in Bethlehem. And it's so crowded because all of the extended family members are in town for, for the holiday census. And what they do is they allow her to give birth in the only unoccupied space that could be found in that house. If you were an ancient farmer, what, what would you imagine as an ancient farmer was your most valuable asset? Your most valuable asset was your family oxen or your family cow. Such a prized asset. That was your livelihood. And what they would often do in those days, or so I've read, is in order to make sure that that animal wouldn't be stolen from them at night, they would bring that animal indoors. Sometimes it was actually a room inside the house that was devoted to the, the family animal or animals but they would secure that animal up inside at night. Or sometimes they would bring the animal inside a cave, and there it would be kept for, for the night. And what we know about the first century Jerusalem, Bethlehem, is that a number of the, the homes backed up to caves. You've probably seen pictures of the Church of the Nativity, the fourth century the Greek Orthodox Basilica that was erected on that site, the, the traditional site of Jesus' birth. And it happens to be built on the top of a cave, which is very plausible. But what we're really talking about, instead of some grumpy innkeeper callously turning Joseph and Mary away into the dead of night in, in a rainstorm, the actual events of the first Christmas were considerably less sensational. In Sunday school last week, we did a 20-question Christmas trivia quiz, and I thought I would bring a couple of these out to see how good you are. Question number one, 
How many magi were there? How many magi or wise men brought gifts to baby Jesus? Well, the answer that every one of them gave was three, but in fact, we don't know how many there were. There were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we're told, all we're told about the magi is that they were, there were magis, that <laughs> there was more than one. The second question we went through is a little bit tougher. How many letters are, are to be found in the angelic alphabet? The answer, the angelic alphabet, anybody that wasn't in my class last week? <laughs> 25. 26 minus 1. There's no L. <laughs> I'll, I'll take some booze for that. Yeah. And then the final question, who, who are the first people to visit Jesus? And everybody answers the shepherds. The shepherds are the very first ones recorded visiting Jesus, but surely it was the family members that lived in the house. They didn't have to walk all the way from the fields. They were able to walk outside the door and, and see Jesus. Those of you who have been Christians longer, much longer than I have, you've heard a lot of Christmas sermons and a lot of pastors. We get a, we get a very strange joy out of um, debunking Christmas myths, us preachers. <laughs> uh, but there is some, there's real value in going back and revisiting and reevaluating a story that is so familiar to us, a story... By virtue of its familiarity, we may have actually missed some parts. I wonder if that's the case with Mary. Mary is often depicted as a frightened, tremulous, teenage gal. She was, most likely, teenage. The typical marriageable age in that day was from 12, between 12 and 16. But I, I don't think that she was a, a tremulous, frightened girl. We get a, the picture of a woman who is deeply trained in Scripture, who when an angel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, she doesn't freak out about it, but she marvels and says, how, how is this going to happen? We know that she, there's a sense of, of faith when she answered that, because when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah in the temple, Zechariah, he says, how will this be? And and he gets cursed with muteness. But Mary, when she asks her question, it's clear that she's a woman of, of faith. And I wonder about Mary if she had what some of us possess, and that is creative vision. Some of us have the ability to, to look at a completely ordinary object and see something new and wonderfully creative about that. So I was at somebody's, somebody's house a few months ago, and what they had done, they had taken a series of old wooden pallets, the types of pallets that you use in a warehouse. They had sanded them and painted them and stacked them on top of each other, set them in the middle of the living room, and these wooden pallets, of all things, made the perfect coffee table. And here we have Mary. She, does she have that kind of 
quality, that same knack, she looks at a wooden manger, and instead of seeing there this rancid feeding bowl, this feeding trough for animals, she sees with a little bit of padding, a little bit of preparation, the perfect crib, the the most secure and comfortable, the perfect place to lay her, her sleeping baby boy. At any rate, the, the picture painted throughout the Gospel of Luke of Mary is not of some frightened, hesitant woman. There are other questions that I ask about the Christmas story. I, I wonder, was a midwife present? Did, did they call the midwife? Uh, I think there was one. I doubt that Joseph was the person who delivered baby Jesus. Maybe it was another member of the family. The whole event had to be fraught with the strangest sense of expectations. Because both the angel had appeared to Joseph and to Mary, and both of them knew that she was going to give birth to the Son of God. Well, what does the Son of God incarnate in flesh? When he comes in flesh, what does the Son of God look like? That had to be the number one question that was going through their minds. We know that children almost always look like their parents, and of course, this child is going to somehow resemble Mary. But what about the, the paternal Y chromosome that has been supplied here? You say, what is he, what, what father-like uh, traits is this infant son going to exhibit? And if he's the son of God come to earth, does he come out of the womb walking and talking? Does he jump out of the womb and, and, uh, and fly? There's, there had to have been all kinds of questions, fascinating questions going through their minds. And so that's, that's about the extent of my old or, or my new thoughts or reflections on the Christmas story. I hope that you'll take a little bit of time this week to revisit it and reevaluate it and discover some new gems that are hidden there. Uh, in terms of more practical aspects of our celebration of Christmas, I came up with a list of a few things. Number one, I, I really believe that we need to pray for each other's joy. I mean, today is winter solstice. <laughs> The days are so dark, and many of us, we're plagued by the Christmas blues. The struggles all of us encounter each Christmas season are well documented, but we're in this together, shouldn't we? need to pray for each other's joy. It's supposed to be the season of joy. Isn't it tragic that many of us don't end up actually enjoying Christmas? Oh, the angel Gabriel was a herald of joy. John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb. The angel chorus brings glad tidings of great joy. Simeon and Anna in the temple, they rejoice to see the salvation of Yahweh. You look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. There's nowhere else in the New Testament do you get more singing than is found at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Yet we're plagued with the Christmas blues. So pray for each other's joy. Pray also for each other's patience. In a recent survey that I read online, respondents indicated that 20% of all family squabbles on Christmas Day will be over what to watch on TV. 14% will be arguments over who does the dishes. 11% arguments over an old family issue. 10% about which presents to open first. That'll happen in my home. <laughs> and, 
at the very top of the list, 25% of all fights will be over board games, board games and card games. <clears throat> you know, that's the superficial, silly stuff that, but, but all of us know the difficult family dynamics that raise their heads up in our homes at Christmas. So we're in this together. Let's pray for each other's patience. Pray for each other's wisdom, dealing with family members and maintaining healthy boundaries if you're into that kind of language like I am. And, and pray for each other's spiritual maturity. Pray that we could wrap our minds around the massive paradoxes that are, that are in place here at Christmas. St. Augustine, in a sermon, a Christmas sermon that he delivered in the year 411, he said that man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. We've, we hear things like that. The, 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 wicked, the wickedly wonderful paradox of the untouchable being touched, the unseen being, uh, being looked upon. Or he goes on in his sermon, the bread of life might become himself hungry. The fountain of living waters would himself thirst. Strength might be made weak, that he who makes well might be wounded, that the life of all might die. The paradoxes go on and on. He who was made, he was made man to suffer these and similar undeserved things for us so that he might free us who ourselves are entirely undeserving. And he who on account of us endured such great evils merited no evil while we who through him are so bountifully blessed had no merits to show for such blessing. I, maybe not reading that, it's hard to listen to or hard to make sense of it, but it, it is hard to make sense of it. How will you begin to wrap your mind around things that are so grand and awe-inspiring? The answer is that, um, oh, you'll never even come close if you don't take any time. The first step is to unwrap your minds around things that are far less wonderful, as wonderful as the fiesta bowl is that I as I told you, I'm going to. Uh, the first step is uh, unwrapping my mind around, around those things. It's so important. I wonder if the very best Christmas present you could give to your children is, is to fall in love with the story again. I think we all know that the things which get imprinted on the hearts and minds of children the most typically Typically, that involves an enthusiastic adult. You think back to junior high and high school. The, the teachers that you loved the most and that were always the ones who were most passionate about their subjects. Maybe the reason that you're an you're a, a ardent Chicago Cubs fan is because your dad was a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan. And so you adopted that team just because you wanted to... Sh- Share in your dad's excitement. Maybe the reason that you, that you like to bake today is simply because, because your mom, she was so excited. 
when fathers laugh and mothers get excited, whatever the cause for those things might be, that enthusiasm and joy gets imprinted on our children's hearts. The the old maxim is true, that your kids will end up uh, learning to love what you love, which is a reminder to us, be careful what you love, because they'll end up loving that too. Well, why not pray that you'd fall back in love with Jesus again? Yeah, this Jesus, the one we love because he first loved us, the one who surprises us that he would make this leap from heaven down to earth. You really could. I suspect that if you would spend the next few days of Advent and then the 12 days of Christmastide searching, pursuing after Jesus Christ, trying to renew your love, renew that love, I can't imagine that that wouldn't be an endeavor that he would bless. He'll bless that. And nothing shapes our children more than our passions. And that's why it's so, as I said, it's so important for us to love the right things. Finally, lastly, David Roper, who I quote every ever so often from the pulpit, a local pastor, he helped me to discover a play that was written by G.K. Chesterton, the great British author, late 19th century, early 20th century the play is entitled The Surprise, and to my knowledge, it's, only, it's one of only two plays that Chesterton ever wrote. It's hardly ever performed. You, you're hard-pressed to even find a copy of it. I got on Amazon yesterday to try to uh, buy The Surprise, and the cheapest copy was something along the lines of $90. So it's, it's very rare. Well, the play is set during the Middle Ages, It opens with a friar wandering through a forest when he comes upon this large rolling caravan, this puppet caravan. Think of a a wooden trailer on wheels with a stage. Large, life-size puppets are lying about on the stage. And there's a puppeteer standing above, above it all, above the structure. And the friar calls out to the puppeteer, the marionette, where are you going to give your next show? Because I'd very much like to, to watch the play. The puppeteer calls back, sit down and I will give you a private performance. The marionette picks up the puppet strings and he begins to perform a romantic tale in which this swashbuckling hero and his friend determined to rescue a fair damsel in distress. They carry the whole thing off with a certain amount of panache. And the play ends, and the, the friar applauds, bravo, bravo. And then the puppeteer again calls down to the friar, and he says, I am I'm very unhappy because I love my puppets, and they cannot reciprocate my love for them. I can only manipulate them from, from above. If only they were alive. So the friar falls down on his knees and he prays that the puppeteer's wish would be granted. And the the curtain closes and that's the end of the first act. Act two begins with with a sort of Pinocchio-like emergence. The, The puppets who are lying on the stage amid their loose strings, all of a sudden they begin to stir, to stir on their own. And then they rise and they start reenacting the play before their very eyes. 
Only this time the play goes all wrong. The hero and his friend get drunk and they get into a fight. They, they begin to quarrel about the, this damsel in distress and they fight over her and they're jealous as a result of the fighting and the drinking and the jealousy. They never arrive in time and the, the damsel in distress dies and the, everything has gone wrong. At that point, the puppet master who's standing up on the roof of the caravan shouts out to his puppet, Stop! Stop it! I'm coming down. And he drops onto the stage to save his puppets from themselves. And the play ends at that moment. G.K. Chesterton doesn't provide a single word of explanation. He just leaves it as it is because a great metaphor, it needs no words of explanation. 